again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeffrey Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center with their base in Caney, Connecticut, and they provide individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in the Connecticut to be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission. Mountainside is currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for its Connecticut and New York locations. Every employee, regardless of position, plays a role in improving the lives of clients and their families. If you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit mountainside.com forward slash careers. And on behalf of the board of directors and staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Presently in the United States, we are two decades into the overdose epidemic with a total of 840,000 deaths since 1999. 2020 alone accounted for just over 11% of that total with 93,000 of our family, friends, and neighbors losing their lives. It is estimated that 2.3 million Americans use heroin and another 1.7 use synthetic opioids without a prescription. 4 million of our compatriots at risk of overdose and thereby death. Our guest today addresses a different aspect of this epidemic in her latest article. She joins us today to discuss the article published on September 16th. Dr. Dr. Emily B. Campbell is a sociologist studying drugs in society, culture, politics, and race and ethnicity. She is currently writing a book tentatively titled Grieving Overdose that examines the social experience of grief related to fatal drug overdose based on a four-year ethnographic study of New England. Her most recent article for the conversation, Oxycontin started the overdose crisis, but stigma and prohibition have fueled it, highlights the role of policy shortcomings and cultural beliefs in contributing to the ongoing rise of fatal drug overdoses here in our country. Dr. Campbell is a visiting assistant professor of sociology at the College of Holy Cross in Worcester and faculty fellow at the Center for Cultural Sociology at Yale University. She received her PhD in sociology from the City University of New York Graduate Center and her BA in sociology from Indiana University in Bloomington. I look forward to speaking to her since reading the article last month, and I'm happy to welcome her to the podcast. Glad to have you, Dr. Campbell. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Great to be here. So much of what happens in the prevention, treatment, and recovery industry right now, it really are uh, responses, if not reactions to the overdose crisis. You look at it through a different lens. Can you tell us why it's important to understand the genesis of and factors that kind of stoke the flames of the opioid crisis? Yes, absolutely. So um, when we look at the opioid crisis, what we really see, um, of course, the massive amount of pharmaceuticals that were made available um, and mass marketed is, you know, played an undeniable major, major factor. Um, in creating a demand that previously wasn't there for many people, right? Um, But what we see over time is really a very dangerous interplay of supply and demand that is really directly linked to prohibition and the criminalization of drug use. And um, what I think, you know, is sometimes not highlighted 
is that for people that use drugs and that sell drugs, we need to acknowledge that when there's a demand, <laughs> supply will follow. And we've seen this tragically unfold over the last two decades as um, the market has really moved from Oxycontin and pharmaceuticals to heroin, to fentanyl, and now to a polydrug overdose crisis. So in some ways, you know, we see the interplay of, you know, what is, what is available um, really shaping, you know, both use patterns, of course, and then um, what I'm particularly focused on is the, you know, tragic outcome of a fatal drug overdose as well. Let's talk about the effects of prohibition on the crisis. I think that that's really misunderstood. People see uh, prohibition as a strictly a positive thing that it's it's going to reduce uh, supply, et cetera. But you report on the ability of illicit uh, the illicit market to adapt to to factors that affect it, um, just like every other business. They they adapt to environmental factors. What are some of the factors that affect that market and, and their effects? Absolutely. So I think it's just, just as a real baseline, the illicit drug market, it annually grosses around the same amount as the alcohol market in the United States, right? This is very, very big business. These are transnational criminal organizations. Um, Guadalupe Correa um, Cabrera has written about the Zetas, for example, and shown that you know, they're much more akin to Apple or Microsoft than they are to, you know, a mom and pop bodega or, a, you know, a mom and pop corner store that one would imagine, right? Um, and I think it's important that the sophistication is acknowledged in some way, right? So how how serious and sophisticated um, the groups that traffic um, are, but also that, again, <laughs> this demand is there. And they will they will take it to the market, right? And we've seen that um, over time, drug prices, in spite of a 50-year campaign of the war on drugs, have dropped over time for people, right? That that was the opposite of what mm-hmm. um, what was anticipated by economists, right? Um, and in particular, when I tr- was trying to understand this dynamic. Um, what I really found the most compelling is this idea of the iron law of prohibition. Um, and, you know, for, for people that are interested in this in regards to the opioid crisis, Leo Batelsky and Corey Davis have, have done a nice job um, really linking this political economy idea um, to what we see today with overdose. Um, and that essentially highlights that when there's pressure on supply, the drug markets themselves respond, right? Um, And the market adapts. And the market adapts in a way that actually favors a higher potency in a smaller package, right? So it's easier to transport, um, harder to detect. Um, And what we've seen, that's really just exactly what's happened with the heroin to fentanyl move, right? Um, It's smaller, it's more potent. um, And when we talk about prohibition, um, we can also remember the money that's being spent um, to criminalize and militarize, um, especially certain communities and certain geographies within the United States along the border. Um, and what this means is that 
all that money um, instead of actually thinking about the demand side. So it's, are we focused on the supply side, which we are, right? We're trying to intercept, interdict. But if we were to focus on the supply side, that would be much more, or excuse me, the demand side, what we would see is even more support for treatment, for example, Mm -hmm. um, more support for education. um, Because over time, um, those are the things that really um, empower people that use drugs to live safer and healthier lives, you know, and choose treatment should they want it. It's a couple of things that you mentioned are really interesting to me, especially you, you talked about the, the demand side. And I know one of my colleagues, uh, David Manetta, was the deputy director at ONDCP for the demand side. And so he focused on treatment access and things to to deal with the demand and understanding that we cannot moralize the demand and say it's only this type of person or that type of person. Um, it, you know, it's everybody's successful. And when you mentioned the Zetas, I found that incredibly interesting about them being big business because I just recently read a book called Bloodlines by Melissa Del Bosque, who talks about the Zetas, how they funnel their money in into legal means with quarter horse racing and things. They diversify. To, mm-hmm. to protect their investments. And that's what good business does. But we tend to overlook that as we see it only uh, them as only a, you know, small that they're bringing drugs in, but it's, they're able to adapt to markets because they have the money to take short-term losses to develop long-term gains. Um, uh, and that's a fascinating book. It's actually, like I said, it's called Bloodlines, Melissa Del Bosque, and it talks about the connection between the Zetas and the quarter horse racing industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Interesting about the fentanyl, because I think that's misunderstood. I, I met a couple of years ago with the Haida, high-density drug trafficking area officer here in Connecticut who, who covers the New England area, and he talked about the accessibility of fentanyl and how inexpensive it is. And he said, you can take $5,000 in investment and turn that into $50,000 almost overnight because you can get fentanyl, the fake uh fentanyl from china and it was coming in through the united states postal service now it's coming in through mexico it's a huge huge problem that i don't think we we grasp to understand and the fda is finally mentioning hey we have to watch out for other substances because they may be made with fentanyl as well they're a little bit behind the game because this stuff was kind of public knowledge uh, for those who know a couple years ago Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and as we talk about the the problem with pharmaceuticals, certainly Purdue Pharma, which is based here in Connecticut, you know, they're the most well-known pariah of the crisis. Um, but the effect of the change in formulation to create an abuse to turn product, um, or as we say in the field, lower risk for diversion, also had really unintended consequences. Can you talk about what some of those are? Sure. Um, and I think, you know, many people that I've interviewed that, um, that I, you know, I hear very long stories about, um, you know, a drug use history, how this impact family life and things like that. And I think many people really felt this turn quite viscerally and, and quite, quite materially, but, um, the abuse deterrent, uh, formula that was brought out, um, which of course still can be abused. It's just the, the way that it was, could be abused was different. Um, also coincided with more scrutiny on prescribing practices, right? Um, more scrutiny on doctors uh, in general. And we, you know, overall as a country, 
consume more pharmaceutical opioids than you know any other country on earth per capita. But um, nonetheless, uh, this did create you know a contraction, quite literally, of, of how available it was. Uh, more scrutiny on people um, with legitimate chronic pain, right, and people that you know just wanted to get the prescription. Um, but so I think what this really did was people, people turned again, um, people turned to heroin, right. Uh, because it was less expensive, um, and quite frankly, more readily available. Right. So, um, the, the off prescription value, and I'm sure many people that work in treatment already know this right? of Oxycontin, mm-hmm. it's a dollar a milligram. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is extremely expensive. Uh, if, we're talking multiple pills a day, which of course we are, if that's like something you're into. Right. So, um, it just was, you know, a cheaper and easier alternative. The market, the market was right there to meet them, Mm. quite frankly. And interestingly, the dollar a milligram price has been that, that price has been consistently around that for many years. But then when we look at the influx of heroin, people, I think in the community don't recognize the availability of heroin and the overall inexpensiveness of heroin compared to um, the use of of opioid prescription painkillers. It's out there and it's cheap and it's more powerful. And we haven't even talked about the fentanyl in it yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, and it hits, it hits, it scratches the same itch, so to speak. When I first started training around the country on best practices for MAT, medication-assisted treatment, or Mm -hmm. or medications for addiction treatment, as the AMA uh, and ASAM prefer to call it, we really struggled with the the idea of of heroin and the pills being the same thing, ultimately. People still look differently on those who started... Uh, the dependence by using pain pills that were prescribed or maybe not prescribed than somebody who maybe uh, was using heroin. We said it's it's the same thing and we wanted them to look at it in a different way. We said the person who's using heroin is being more careful with their money, so to speak. We said, look at it that way. It's less expensive. You can buy the brand name or buy the generic and, and so many of us buy generic of, of you know, it, it, it's all morphine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the latest statistics here in Connecticut show, as we speak of fentanyl, fentanyl was a factor in 85% of overdose deaths during the reporting period. Uh, we understand the results uh, as they relate to adulterated drugs, especially heroin, but we don't necessarily see the overall scope of the problem. Can you talk more about uh, where this fentanyl is being found? Sure. So, uh, I think at this point it is um, safe to say, or fair to say, that fentanyl has widely contaminated the American illicit drug supply um, in a way that was not the case absolutely five years ago, or maybe even three years ago. Um, and it's frequently found in cocaine. Um, I mean, in addition to heroin, of course, right? So it's frequently mm-hmm. found in cocaine. It's found in MDMA or ecstasy, um, methamphetamine. And then press counterfeit prescription pills that to the naked eye um, look like something that's just uh, came from a pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so it's in a lot of different drugs. And what this has really done is it's 
of course it's created a surge in, in drug overdose. Um, the worst surge, <laughs> you know, particularly surging is that's not a good word when we're talking about fatal outcomes for, for people. Um, this is, you know, a very long and tragic drama, unfortunately with yeah. the overdose crisis. Um, but what it's done also is that, you know, people that do not consider themselves at risk for an overdose are now very at risk for an overdose. Right. Um, so the first decade of the opioid crisis, uh, nine out of 10 new heroin users or opioid users were white. Um, and this is very much, uh, what is still in people's minds about the opioid crisis. This is a white problem. It's a suburban rural problem. Um, that is not the case with fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is because of the contamination of the drug supply across the board. So what we're seeing, what's been demonstrated, right. Is that there are very high and disturbing rates, quite frankly, in communities of color, in African-American communities, in Latinx communities. And many of these people are, um, what some would term seasoned drug users in the sense that maybe they use recreationally every once in a while, but they've used on and off, um, for 20 years. So they have no reason to believe that they're so inexperienced that all of a sudden they're, you know, putting their life at risk. Um, but of course, uh, with a fentanyl overdose, it happens extremely quickly. Um, if you don't even think you're ingesting an opioid, the likelihood of being prepared to respond to that, um, is probably also delayed. Mm. I would imagine. Um, and yeah, it's, it's actually quite, quite serious. So I think that anybody <laughs> using drugs, it really, it's just expanded the amount of people that use drugs that are at risk for a fatal overdose, um, to a, a huge cross cross section of those. Um, and, and I would just say, you know, people that are interested in fentanyl in particular, the work of Daniel Sicaroni of, uh, UC San Francisco, he's, he's been one of the first people, um, to really publish on this. He published in 2017, fentanyl, a rapidly changing risk scape, right? He, mm-hmm. he saw it come, he saw the storm coming, uh, because he's a very on the ground researcher. So of course, you know, people that, that work in harm reduction researchers embedded in, in, in communities of people that use drugs really kind of see this stuff first. They, they can, they can see what's coming. So when, when I was first, uh, as I referenced early training around the country on, on, on MAT, we saw the big push because it was uh, in treatment options or, or people wanted to get treatment because it was affecting white suburban and often rural communities and it became a crisis. But we recognize that at least here on the East Coast and, and, and on the West Coast, people have been dying from heroin overdoses for 70 years. I mean, at, at incredible numbers. Um, and, and it's for me, it's interesting because I lost my brother to an overdose that many people know in 1990, and he was just considered a junkie. And his knee, his daughter actually passed a few years ago um, from an accidental overdose, and it, she was looked at as more of a victim. And I, anybody who overdoses and dies is a victim, and I bristle at that at the the opioid crisis, saying it just started when people died long before that. Um, mm-hmm. And we didn't pay any attention to it, kind of like the crack epidemic. Mm-hmm. But we also um, have to understand that most people that use drugs recreationally are not dependent, do not go to the level of dependency. Mm-hmm. 
And now we're looking at it a whole new, just like you referenced, a whole new group of people that are at risk of, of overdose and death who are recreational drug users, like you said, have been doing it for a long time, maybe careful and planful about what they mm-hmm. use, but that's changed significantly right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll just to add on this is um, I think it's, it's really important that, you know, a, a very rapid harm reduction response is rolled out as, as fast as humanly possible mm-hmm. um, to make fentanyl test strips widely accessible um, to make Narcan even more accessible, train people in how to respond and, and understand, recognize the signs of a drug overdose um, so they can respond as quickly as possible. Um, and I think it is, a, it is an ongoing all hands on deck necessity, but I think more than ever, this is, this is very serious. And as, as you referenced, I've seen um, from uh, my interactions with the HIDA task force, I've seen um, what, a prescri- what a Xanax a false Xanax looks like compared to, and to the trained eye, you look at it and can see it pretty clearly that, but if you're in a position where you're purchasing a substance from the street or somebody, you're not going to look that closely and and notice the difference. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're using a very similar pill press um, Mm -hmm. and it again, creates the risk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, right now, everybody in the world knows we're in the middle of a COVID uh, pandemic. What effect has COVID had on the drug supply? Um, my understanding, and again, the best information is really gleaned from people that use drugs themselves, harm reduction workers, and then researchers embedded in these communities. Um, and what, from what I've read and understood, it's really um, a surge in polydrug overdoses um, because shifts in what was available happened very quickly. So um, people, there was a surge in prices for a short amount of time um, for a number of illicit drugs. My understanding is those have evened out, um, but overall it really kind of created, um, there, there was demand, but the supply kind of got wacky. Right. Um, so people were essentially, um, you know, seeking out and, you know, consuming what they could find, which is often, um, a mix of things that maybe traditionally wouldn't be their preference or, um, the first thing they would go to. Yeah. So the polydrug overdose, that is the, the current again, next surge. And this is, you know, from people mixing many, you know, more than one drug. As you say, you get a lot of information from, from people who use drugs and harm reduction works. I actually have um, a, a upcoming podcast will be with a couple of people from the harm reduction coalition uh, oh, nationally okay. to kind of talk about the need to to normalize the idea of, of harm reduction. Uh, mm-hmm. The barriers to treatment are really well understood by our field. Anyone that works the field understands that the people who need treatment can't always get it, and those who want to often struggle to find a place uh, to get that in their own community. But what we don't see so much is how clearly these false narratives um, create more harm. And this is an issue that's been brought up uh, multiple times by Dr. Carl Hart of Columbia. Um, you know, but often those his views are dismissed because he has different views about legalization, which are somewhat off the grid. But but Carl makes a lot of, of good points and creates things for thinking. But 
What are some of the impacts of these opinions, of these false narratives that are unsupported on any scientific level um, that are seen in the community? What's the impact of, of those false narratives? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the key one, which, which I did write about in the piece, but um, you hear time and time again, is stigma, right? Mm. And this, I think it's stigma is a very complex concept and how people experience it is actually, is, as a social scientist, is quite interesting. Mm. Um, but I think the bottom line is um, there's such a stigma on people that use drugs in such a number of ways, right? So um, they're assumed to be incompetent, uh, irrational, unable to make any decisions, not deserving of autonomy. Mm. Um, and I think we can't really, it's just in, t- in 2021, there's really no other community that is, um, so infanticized, um, like, like this group, right? I mean, what other group, uh, you know, is it so, e- so people so easily buy into, no, they, you know, they can't make their own decisions. Um, I just don't think that there, I, it's, it's hard for me. You know, I think there's a stigma, of course, this intersects with, you know, mental illness, maybe, and dual diagnosis around that as well. But I think it's, it's quite wild, um, how accepted it still is to, um, really dismiss the humanity and complexity of people, um, that choose to use drugs. Um, and then I think the second part really, um, in addition to stigma is that, um, you have to want it, (laughs) um, this idea that, you know, there's a certain, you know, moral threshold for which somebody has to fulfill. Um, and unfortunately this falls, you know, it's experience. I've, I've talked to people that are from the most advantaged, advantaged, right. Privileged communities in, in new England, Mm -hmm. and they experience, um, these types of things where they're being moralized and, Oh, well, he has to want it. Um, you have to jump through certain hoops. You have to look a certain way and then you're deserving of care. Um, and I think that also just does massive damage. So if I'm hearing this from privileged people, um, you know, we can imagine if you're structurally marginalized, if you're Mm. poor, um, person of color, um, that is seeking treatment, um, you know, you have to meet people where they're at, (laughs) I think is, is really the bottom line. And I think that's kind of what you like to point out too. I think the field does a terrible job of meeting people where they're at. I've actually a plenary that I've done in salt, uh, for a training in Salt Lake city was, um, uh, meeting clients where they're at and other fairy tales, you know, credibility <laughs> issues with the field. We, we want people to meet us where we're at. Mm-hmm. And a big example of that is they have to hit rock bottom. Well, I know from my own family and from my work, there is only one rock bottom yeah. and that's death. We want to lift that bottom and any, any way we can do that is important. Um, when I talk to people at harm reduction, um, they've taught me some valuable things. And one is harm reduction isn't really a good name for it. It really should be called treatment because that's what it is. They're treating somebody to help give them a better life at the life that they choose. Um, but it, 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 the stigma is great. It is fueled by pop culture that show, um, intervention which is horrible and infantilizes so like you said individuals um make this as if they can't think 
Um, and one of the struggles that I see, and I'm glad you mentioned it, was about this, uh, this group being infantilized is when we look at recovery support activities, oftentimes they're very childish in nature. We're going to get a group of people and we're going to go bowling as a group and we're going to go in a van and do those things. Um, I, I give Mountainside, my sponsor, actually a lot of credit. They organized the tour of the New York Botanical Gardens and it made me happy because it's, that's what grown people do. They do think that was an adult activity. It was a recovery activity, but it, it, it was much mm -hmm. less stigmatizing because people could explore. And, and, and I, I just don't think we have enough of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and, and, it's, it's important to have fun, right? Yeah. And, and it's right, whichever way that looks for people, you know, but in a healthy way, yeah. if, if that can be part of it, that makes treatment that much more desirable. Right. And people should be enjoying their lives. Right? And, and we see a lot of stigma against um, medication assisted treatment, even though we know that that has some of the best outcomes, treatment outcomes uh, that we've seen sometimes between 75 and 85 percent for sustained sobriety. We're not really we're not measuring recovery. Unfortunately, we're resonating uh, of lack of drug use. Um, but we see it significantly underutilized. There's 350, 360,000 people uh, in the country receiving methadone. Um, and when we look at buprenorphine, only about 51% of wavered physicians are actually prescribing. In Connecticut, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Service, I asked them a couple of years ago if they had an idea. They said about 10% of wavered physicians uh, were prescribing. I haven't asked in several years, so I say that info is about five years old. So we've got very few people in methadone uh, to support their recovery. We've only... People are receiving buprenorphine, but doctors aren't prescribing it what they're allowed to in terms of number of patients. So we're not we're not treating those who seek um, recovery. Can you talk about some stigma and how it affects those who really would benefit from MAT? Sure. So um, thanks for this question. Of course, MAT for especially for opioid use disorder is um, the most effective treatment. Right that currently exists um, based on, you know, quite a large body of literature. Um, and of course, this should be accessible to, to anybody that wants it, in, in my opinion. Um, the, <laughs> that is not the case, right. right? So what we see actually in terms of patterns of who is able to access uh, methadone or buprenorphine, um, people of color are more likely to be um, referred to methadone, uh, which often has um, kind of a lot more um, surveillance mechanisms mm -hmm. embedded into the way the treatment is done. Um, I would refer people to the work of David Frank. He's done some really interesting work on methadone. Um, but, and then buprenorphine um, is really nice from what I hear in that it gives people a lot of autonomy um, that methadone doesn't afford. Um, but in terms of when we look at prescription rates, it's more often prescribed to white people than people of color. Um, and this, you know, presents a, a lot of questions. So I think um, there's kind of a punitive punishing approach in general that seeps its way in to the way um, we handle um, and approach like as on a structural level and a cultural level, um, 
people that use drugs and that are seeking medically assisted treatment. Um, there, you know, there's some very, you know, misguided beliefs, quite frankly, that, um, you're not totally sober or there's some moralized attachment, um, to a choice to be on medically assisted treatment. Um, I think these type of cultural narratives, um, quite frankly, are just, they're so damaging because what it really means is a person that could be successful on mat, um, will stay using in this very erratic, highly risky, um, current illicit drug market. Right. And, you know, what we're looking at life and death in some instances for people. And I think, um, I hope that people are waking up to that and that best practices need to be embraced and rolled out and made highly accessible, you know, to all people that want them again. Yeah. And I agree wholeheartedly, and I and know the research shows that communities of color, black and brown people are um, affected by this much more so than than white communities, especially around the methadone. Your methadone, it can be like a job. It, it works incredibly well for the person that it's appropriate for. But um, it's news to me, and, and I'm glad you said it, that uh, black and brown people have a harder time accessing buprenorphine and it is much less restrictive and that's where a lot of the 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 issues of social control and things come around with methadone which is uh, kind of what the nixon administration you know wanted to see um when they allowed for methadone clinics but i also find it funny that methadone clinics which are thrown under the bus as being just this terrible thing in a community that <laughs> we pumped a lot of money into the federally qualified healthcare centers in the communities, which mirror that model with a one-stop shop for a lot of different things. So mm -hmm. getting the, the right treatment for the right person uh, is, is always going to be a difficult, difficult process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you talk about effective ways to deal with this crisis, um, you know, very like, simple and, and effective harm reduction programming is, is clearly recommended. Um, how does stigma and prohibition play a role in blocking the use of harm reduction approaches? Is there any thoughts on this? Um, I think uh, there is um, a model based on a, cer a certain model of sobriety um, that many people will never fit into that. Um, and I think looking, you know, harm reduction really says, how can we help people live healthier and happier lives, right? And make informed decisions about their own health. Um, and I think, you know, paternalistic approaches, um, criminalization approaches, right? So they're half punishment or there's a coercion element. Um, this isn't empowering people. This is disempowering people, mm. right? Um, what we look at, of course, um, you know, racial justice movements and how they see the, the war on drugs is a complete catastrophe for communities of color, right? Mm. Um, complete catastrophe. And that's not just for people that have been incarcerated and have to bear the mark of that incarceration and be legally and are legally discriminated against mm. in the United States but also of course their communities, their families. Um, so 
I think that's a huge part um, that there is this kind of massive shadow of, Mm. um, you know, criminal justice, the carceral system, the prison industrial complex that, um, you know, in some ways, treatment is kind of living in the shadow of that. Right. And, you know, both of these things are existing now kind of simultaneously. We have a lot of treatment, um, but we still have a lot of punishment. Um, and I see these paradigms really as continuing to compete, um, and kind of falling on lines, um, of similar advantage and disadvantage that we see, you know, in, in other aspects of society, right. Who has access to high quality education, um, things of that nature. So it's much more far reaching. And, um, Van Jones, who was a, an anchor at CNN and a colleague of mine here in Connecticut, Lewis Reed have done some work. Um, and the effects of, a, of somebody getting out of, out of prison with a felony, the, there are thousands of effects that occur that, really damage their ability to get back and function within society because of the prohibitions. So there are thousands of things that come with that simple felony conviction um, that, that struggle people and uh, get people to struggle. And it's really what it's exactly what the war on drugs wanted, wanted to create. You know, when Ehrlichman said what was going on was, was honest before his death, but what Nixon was up to um, it, it changed the view of things. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have to, as an industry, as a field, we have to recognize that that was a problem and we have to do everything we can to combat it. Um, it's okay for someone to say, I had a tough day. I, I want a cocktail, but it's not okay for somebody who you, who happens to recreationally use drugs and access, uh, whatever they need or want in their lives. Uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, it's such a convoluted um, practice. It's, it's it's that eddy. It's the whirlpool that's just pulling people down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, before we finish up, is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, because this uh, scope of practice is geared towards treatment professionals, mm-hmm. I just um, would like to thank those that are out in the community um, working to empower um, our brothers, sisters, and friends that use drugs and that are, um, seeking treatment. Um, I think that, um, treatment is not fully understood, um, (laughs) by many that don't, you know, aren't in this world. Um, uh, but the work that you guys do is important. Um, and I think that people should be encouraged to, um, stay humanized right um for themselves and mm-hmm. and for the people that they work with um so yeah i would just like to say thank you for for people out there doing the work and, and speaking uh, not that i have the right to but speaking on behalf of that community um you know i want to say thank you and appreciate the work that you do i think that it gives us a better understanding we have to understand the sociological aspects of where we are at and how we got here and i think that you provide a lot of information basis that helps us understand how we got where we at we have to recognize that um before we can get to, to get out of it we have to know what we're up against and i think it's mm-hmm. to me it's i find it fascinating but i also find it really important mm-hmm. so thank you for spending time with us today right. i really appreciate thank you it so much. 
That's going to do it for our episode of Scope of Practice today. I'd like to thank Dr. Emily Campbell for taking the time out of her schedule to talk with us. We again extend our gratitude to Mountain Side Treatment Center and their chief executive officer, uh, Andre Basso, for their generous support of this podcast for the last six months. Today is the last um, uh, day that they have... last one that they have financially supported. Um, It's a pleasure to have them as part of our program. And we here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who is listening. And don't forget to follow us on Podbeans, iTunes, Amazon, or wherever you get your, listen to your favorite podcast. And we'll catch you next time, everybody. Mm